You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, episode 77. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Well, we made it to Sunday. (laughs) I finally made it back to producing a Sunday episode of the podcast after a month away. But hopefully now, as of this past Monday, my medical struggles are behind me and I can begin to heal and to regain my strength, build my stamina and my cardio back up. I've already done it. I've already you know, begun doing it. But hopefully now I can get right, as we used to say. So for everyone who reached out and supported me, encouraged me, prayed for me during the two visits to the ER and the three days I spent in the hospital and the procedures and the operation, thank you so much. It means more than you will ever know to know that even though I don't have a lot of family support around me, I don't have a lot of friends to support me, I have my family, I have those who are closest to me in my congregation, my training partners who are closer to me than anybody other than my family, and you who reached out, like I said, and just wanted to let me know you were praying for me or to check in on me or to encourage me to take it easy, listen to my body, not try and push too hard and come back too fast. I heard you. I do hear you. And I am listening. So as we get back, hopefully, into a regular rotation now on the Sunday readings, the Wednesday debrief, we can dive deep into some books that I've wanted to get to for a while. I need to order them, though. First things first, had to deal with my medical issues. And so today, before I set off on a different trajectory, a different stack of books that I need to read for the podcast, I wanted to go back to something that I've had for two years now. It's a book I've had for about two years. I got it right after I purchased The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday, which... If you've never read The Obstacle is the Way, it's one of the handful of books I recommend to everyone who comes to me for counseling, for advice, or just to ask, what's a good book that can provide a different roadmap forward that can help me change the direction of the way that I think, the way that I behave, how I make my choices? Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin is number one on my list, always. I even recommend it when I do marriage counseling. But I think a close second is The Obstacle is the Way. And then this book, which is short and sweet and gets right to the point. It is imminently practical. I am not a fan of idealistic books. I don't like abstract generalities. I don't like theories. I prefer wisdom that is practical. I prefer... Examples that are immediately able to be put into practice in my life and the life of others. I don't, and I don't want people that come to me for advice or for counseling to walk away thinking, we talked a lot, there were lots of words exchanged, but I'm not quite sure if it really provided anything practical for me. And that book that I want to read from today then is called Make Your Bed by Admiral William McRaven, U.S. Navy, retired. Little things that can change your life and maybe the world. 
And the chapter that I wanted to read from today in particular is on page 67 of this book. It's entitled, Stand Up to the Bullies. There are no end of bullies in life. When I was little, I was bullied by my father, by my uncles, bullied by other women in my life. As I grew up and we moved around a lot, I was bullied by classmates. And so I hate bullies. I hate them. And I don't use that word lightly. The word hate to me should be a word that is used sparingly and specifically. And much like my favorite cuss word, which starts with a C, it's not something that you just drop in casual conversation. It's not something you just throw out casually and expect nobody to react. I think that people in general use the term hate far too much. It's like the word love. Oh, I love cheeseburgers. Do you? Do you love them enough to sacrifice your life for them? Oh, I, I love my favorite football team or sports team. Do you? Do you love them enough to sacrifice everything to make sure that they succeed and thrive? We use the term love so cheaply that then when we say to someone who is our beloved, I love you, does it have the same intensity? Does it carry the same weight? Does it have the same value? In the Greek language, or at least in ancient Greek, which I'm most familiar with, there are at least four words that describe love, depending on what kind of love you're referring to, whether it's agape love, filial love, eros, erotic love, storge, the love that you have for your favorite music or your favorite sports team. But the Greeks were very specific about what kind of love they were referring to when they used the word. We have one word, love, and then we have to provide sub classes to help express what exactly we mean when we say we love cheeseburgers or we love our favorite sports team or we love that band or we love our wife, husband, whoever it might be. And in my experience anyways, as with love, hate is too easily thrown around in casual conversation. It's not reserved for the people and the things that truly deserve such a monumental term. I hate bullies. I hate communists, actually. Having met so many of them, I find them deplorable. I loathe them and their ideology. I think it's satanic. And so I hate them. And I hate bullies. Because bullies are weaklings and cowards who prey upon others in order to make themselves feel strong and powerful, in order to reap some reward from the suffering and the agony and the grief that a bully causes others, whether it be children that bully each other or adults. Today in our society, not just in the United States, but I think worldwide, there are a plethora of bullies. And it is challenging for me, to be blunt, to interact and interface with people that use their position their vocation, such as a doctor, to bully me, to say to me, if you don't do what I tell you, then I won't perform the procedure. If you don't wear your mask, if you don't get a COVID test, I refuse to treat you. 
that person now is behaving like a bully. And my gut reaction to bullies is to get in their face and teach them there's a difference between a bully and a man. And often, the better part of valor, the better part of loving my neighbor as myself, is to not say exactly what I think to the doctor or the nurse, to not act on my desires, which is to grab him and demonstrate for him the difference between a bully and, like I said, a man who can handle himself. But that's, for those of us who hate bullies, who train to stand up to bullies, who train others to stand up to bullies. It is a challenge, for sure, to maintain our cool, to keep our emotions in check, to not say what we want to say, but to behave tactfully, kindly, honorably, respectfully to those who don't deserve our respect, and to do so in such a way that we recognize there is a way to interact with bullies and to engage bullies in a professional setting, versus in an interpersonal setting. And there's a difference between engaging and interfacing with bullies in an interpersonal setting versus a bully is bullying someone else and you witness it and you want to do something about it. Because there's not just the physical engagement, but there's the emotional and the intellectual engagement. And if we only react physically, we're like a bull in a china shop. We're a blunt weapon and we may end up causing more harm than good. When I counsel people in a situation of domestic violence, what I want to do, because I grew up being abused physically, verbally, is I want to get a baseball bat. I want to walk into their house and I want to beat the abuser until they're so broken that they're never able to lay their hands on this person again and hurt them. I want to beat them with a baseball bat. I want to break every bone on their hands. I want to break their kneecaps. I want to break their ribs. I want to crack their skull open. But I don't. Because once they heal, the abuse may double or triple or quadruple to the extent that they may kill the person that they're abusing in retribution for having broken the seal, for having violated the boundaries of the relationship by going outside the house and confessing the sin of the abuser to another. So at least for myself, being completely blunt and transparent with you, my visceral, raw, primal reaction to a bully is what I just described to you, which is extreme violence. And so one of the things that has helped me as I've grown and become an adult and have children and teach others how to stand up to bullies is not only how to defend themselves physically, but emotionally and intellectually as well. And recognize we all have those moments when we want to let loose. We want to let our emotions just fly. But also recognize if or when we choose to do that, the consequences may be dire we may end up in jail. We may actually end up working against ourselves and hurting those who we thought we were helping. So how do you stand up to a bully? 
when you go into a doctor's office and they want to force you to do something that you are not comfortable doing or that you disagree with ethically or morally or on the basis of your religion or on science. (laughs) What do you do when you're at your gym and someone in the gym is a bully? What do you do at work when one of your coworkers is a bully or someone at school is a bully? What do you do when someone in your home is a bully? So this is page 67 in the book Make Your Bed by William McRaven. If you want to change the world, don't back down from the sharks. The water off San Clemente Island was choppy and cold as we began our four-mile night swim. Anson Mark Thomas was matching my side stroke one for one. With nothing but a loose-fitting wetsuit top, a mask, and a pair of fins, we swam hard against the current that was pushing southward around the small peninsula. The lights of the naval base from which we had started began to fade as we made our way out into the open ocean. Within an hour, we were about a mile off the beach and seemingly all alone in the water. Whatever swimmers were around us were cloaked in darkness. I could see Mark's eyes through the glass in his face mask. His expression must have mirrored mine. We both knew that the waters off San Clemente were filled with sharks. Not just any sharks, but great white sharks, the largest, most aggressive man-eater in the ocean. Prior to our swim, the SEAL instructors had given us a briefing on all the potential threats we might encounter that night. There were leopard sharks, mako sharks, hammerhead sharks, thresher sharks. But the one we feared the most was the great white. There was something a little unnerving about being alone at night in the middle of the ocean, knowing that lurking beneath the surface was a prehistoric creature just waiting to bite you in half. But we both wanted to be seals so badly that nothing in the water that night was going to stop us. If we had to fight off the sharks, then we were both prepared to do so. Our goal, which we believed to be honorable and noble, gave us courage, and courage is a remarkable quality. Nothing and nobody can stand in your way. Without it, Others will define your path forward. Without it, you are at the mercy of life's temptations. Without courage, men will be ruled by tyrants and despots. Without courage, no great society can flourish. Without courage, the bullies of the world rise up. With it, you can accomplish any goal. With it, you can defy and defeat evil. One of the topics I've been reflecting on of late to better organize my thoughts is not only the lack of courage in our society, especially as McRaven details it here, but the overall weakness of the people that I interact with every day and that I must be more humble in my interactions with them. That I need to 
find the balance so that I can be a kinder and a gentler person. Because when I am around weak people, my instinct, my first choice of behavior is to disdain them. It is to dismiss them as weak. I loathe weakness in others because I loathe it in myself. And the reason I bring this up is because when you are bullied, you feel so weak. You feel hopeless, vulnerable. You feel worthless. You feel lesser than. Ultimately, you feel as if you don't deserve to be alive. And having gone through that myself so much, especially as a child, when you are bullied by adults as a child, I think it's particularly harmful because the physical, the bruises, the red welts, those heal. Maybe you have a scar or two from a cut from a belt, for example, or maybe your dad put out cigarette butts on your arm. I knew somebody who did that to their kid when I was in high school. But it's what happens to your heart. It's the trauma that is induced into your mind that you never heal from. At least I've never healed from it. And you carry that with you. I carry that with me every day of my life. That's why I have such a visceral, visceral primal reaction to bullies. That's why whenever I sniff out a bully, just like when I sniff out an addict, it doesn't take me too long. And once I've got your number, I've triangulated, I've triangulated you. To have to suffer as a child or as an adult through something that is so disheartening, so destructive to your mental stability and sobriety, something that is so heartbreaking, something that can ultimately drive you even to suicide. For a person to do that to another person, not because they needed to, not because they were forced to, but because they themselves are so weak and so cowardly that the only way they can make themselves feel better about themselves is to cause grief and suffering and shame to another person. That is, to me, the most deplorable kind of human being, whether it's a politician, whether it's a coach, whether it's a, a spouse or a partner, whether it's a boss, a teacher. When someone in particular is in a position of power or authority or influence over another person or other people, even if it's just peer relationships, that responsibility to behave in such a way that you don't harm other people on purpose. You don't go out of your way to diminish and demean others, to make them feel smaller so that you can feel bigger. You diminish their worth in order to increase your own self-esteem, your own personal sense of worth. What is your goal? 
It's a closed system. It's a feedback loop. Because every time you bully someone, you're trying to convince yourself of something that is like a spell that can't be broken. You are weak and you are a coward. And having to bully others who are lesser than you, smaller than you, only reinforces the fact that you are weak and that you are a coward. Bullies never punch up. They always punch down. And every time they punch down, it reinforces for them that they are not strong because strong people don't punch down. Strong people do not kick homeless people who are passed out drunk in the gutter. Strong people do not return hate for hate. Strong people return hate with love, with kindness, with forgiveness. And sometimes, yes, that love means I have to stop you from acting out on your hatred for me, for others. But to do that, you need courage. You need courage to love someone who is unlovable or your enemy. You need courage to be kind to those who are disrespectful. You need courage to stand up and to say to another person, your behavior, your words is unacceptable. And you need to stop it right now. Otherwise, there will be tyranny in your homes, in your communities, in your schools, in your office place, in your communities, in your nation. Where there is no courage, society cannot flourish. And the bullies of the world rise up, and then we end up being ruled by weaklings and cowards. Because our society is dominated by weaklings and cowards. Every commercial I see reminds me of this. I cannot name the last time I saw a man in a commercial with men in it. To be a man is to be born with a set of chromosomes. Manhood is something that must be earned. It must be something that's achieved. It's a goal to be reached. It's an idea to be striven for. And so when I watch commercials, I don't see men. When I look around church, I don't see men. When I look in my community, I don't see men. There are many men, biologically, in my community, in my church, around me, in culture. But the one thing they lack is manhood. And so as one uh, associate of mine said, there are a lot of men in church, there's just no men in church. Meaning, yeah, there's a lot of people with a certain set of chromosomes in church, but many of them have never achieved manhood. They have never passed through the right. They have never been engaged in the struggle that makes one a man. Because our society has all but annihilated any rituals or rites that mark a boy's passage into manhood. And as such, our society is dominated by man-child. And for me, anyways, and this is my sin, my sin of pride and hubris, they disgust me. 
because there is no men to stand up to these bullies. And so the bullies take over. The weaklings and the cowards run the show. And weaklings and cowards vote for them and support them and march and protest for them and say, yes, sir, no, sir, to them. And the thought of revolution, the thought of revolting or rebelling against a bully, to them, to the weaklings, to the cowards, is in and of itself a cardinal sin. Here's my age. <laughs> when I was in college, we took over Wall Street. When I was in college, we organized Lollapalooza. When I was in college, we caused the Peace Corps and AmeriCorps to explode with volunteers. When I was in college, we were activists. We took care of each other. We were the DIY generation. We were the punks. We were those who were disenfranchised. We were the wrong way kids, to quote bad religion. We fought for our freedoms. We fought for our right to party, to quote the Beastie Boys. But we fought because we were raised by the post-Vietnam generation who taught us, don't trust authority. Never, ever trust the government. Never trust the media. So we didn't, and we rebelled. And then somehow, our kids grew up with us as these helicopter parents, trying our best to protect them from these evils, these monumental evils, these multinational corporations that poison the land and the sky and the water. We tried to protect them from these pharmaceutical corporations which profit off of our diseases that they themselves cause. <laughs> we fought against GMOs in Monsanto. We fought against our government. We fought against Wall Street. We lost, of course, because we were the mouse that roared. But then we helicopter-parented our kids and we taught them, you can't trust authority. You can't believe what you hear on the news. All of these people and these entities are against you. And they want to enslave, enslave and oppress you. And our kids grew up afraid. Rightly so. But unhealthily too. Because not a lot of parents knew how to teach their kids how to grow up with a healthy fear of these people. But also with a strong streak of courage. And now for the first time that I can remember in all of my studying of history, we have a generation of young people who want to give away their freedom as quickly as possible. They don't believe in God, so therefore they don't believe in objective morality or rights. They don't have any hope because that's been taken from them. They exist in an eternal present and they are afraid of everything, even things that are invisible, like viruses. Who's to blame? We're all to blame. Because the world is full of bullies. And we didn't raise our kids to stand up to the bullies properly.
until finally, with an armada of bullies around every corner, our kids threw up their hands and said, fuck it. <laughs> What's the point? Why fight City Hall? Why fight Amazon and Microsoft? Why fight Monsanto? Why fight the Koch brothers? Why fight the government? You're going to lose. You always lose. Why not just get along to go along? Why not just enjoy all the conveniences that we have been given? So there is no courage. It's rare. Instead, we are overwhelmed in our society by weakness and cowardice. It is disheartening in a certain sense for me if I dwell on it too much. But then I slap myself mentally and say, okay, if you don't like it, what are you going to do to change it? And that's the point. Once you identify the problem, once you identify the threat, once you acknowledge that's the enemy, now what? What are you going to do to prepare? What are you going to do to prepare others? How are you going to raise your children or other children? How are you going to teach others, children and adults, to be prepared to stand up to the bully wherever they pop up and to not feel as if it's futile? Should I continue with the book? Saddam Hussein, the now former president of Iraq, sat on the edge of an old army cot, clad only in an orange jumpsuit. Having been captured by U.S. forces 24 hours earlier, he was now a prisoner of the United States. As I opened the door to allow the new Iraqi government leaders into the room, Saddam remained seated. A smirk crossed his face, and there was no sign of remorse or submission in his attitude. Immediately, the four Iraqi leaders began to yell at Saddam, but from a safe distance. With a look of contempt, Saddam gave them a deadly smile and motioned them to sit down. Still fearful of the former dictator, they each grabbed a folding chair and took their seats. The screaming and finger-pointing continued, but slowly subsided as the former dictator began to talk. Under Saddam Hussein, the Ba'ath Party was responsible for the deaths of thousands of Shia Iraqis and tens of thousands of Kurds. Saddam had personally executed a number of his own generals whom he felt were disloyal. Although I was positive Saddam would no longer be a threat to the other men in the room, the Iraqi leaders were not so certain. The fear in their eyes was unmistakable. This man, the butcher of Baghdad, had for decades terrorized an entire nation. His cult of personality had drawn to him followers of the worst sort. His murderous thugs had brutalized the innocent and forced thousands to flee the country. No one, no one in Iraq had mustered the courage to challenge the tyrant. There was no doubt in my mind that these new leaders were still terrified of what Saddam might be able to do, even from behind bars. If the purpose of the meeting was to show Saddam that he was no longer in power, it had failed. In those brief moments, Saddam had managed to intimidate and frighten the new regime leadership. He seemed more confident than ever. 
As the Iraqi leaders left, I instructed my guards to isolate the former president in a small room. There would be no visitors, and the guards in the room were ordered not to talk with Saddam. Over the next month, I visited the small room every day. And every day, Saddam rose to greet me. And every day, without speaking, I motioned him back to his cot. The message was clear. He was no longer important. He could no longer intimidate those around him. He could no longer instill fear into his subjects. Gone was the gleaming palace. Gone were the handmaidens, the servants, and the generals. Gone was the power. The arrogance and oppressiveness that had defined his rule had ended. Courageous young American soldiers had stood up to his tyranny, and now he was no longer a threat to anyone. And that's the thing. Bullies rule through fear. It's their greatest weapon. It is through fear that they elevate themselves above us. It is through fear that they subjugate us. It is through fear that they strip us of our confidence, of our self-respect, of happiness. Their arrogance, their oppressiveness defines them. It distorts and perverts their self-image. And sometimes it takes someone else of courage to step in between us and the bully. Maybe it's just to point out that the emperor has no clothes, that the bully is weak and cowardly, and that the fear that he or she attempts to instill in us only is effective if we allow it to penetrate and infect us. But the key to defeating and disarming a bully is to demonstrate to them and to others that they are not a threat or that they are no longer a threat. Perhaps, as McRaven describes, it's just with a hand gesture. Perhaps it's with how you hold yourself and how you carry yourself in relation to a bully when you're in the same room with them. Perhaps it's a word that is spoken tactically, that is like a laser beam pointing at the heart, pinpointing the heart of what makes the bully a bully. And sometimes, yeah, you just got to knock them out. But the key is courage. When we go into the world, there are great white sharks in the world. And if we want to change the world, not only do we have to accept that, but we have to make up our mind that we're not going to back down from the sharks. And that the only way to make the world a better place is not to back down to the sharks. The only way to change the world the only way to overcome tyranny and defeat oppression is through courage. Moral courage, physical courage, intellectual courage, emotional courage, interpersonal courage. 
But if we don't invest in ourselves and others, if we don't take the time to ask, well, what is courage? (laughs) What is it? What does it look like? What does it sound like? How do I become a courageous person if I'm not a courageous person? If I grew up being bullied, or if I am being bullied, how do I get courage? Well, let's start with the simple definition of courage. Courage is the choice and willingness to confront agony, pain, danger, uncertainty, or intimidation. Physical courage is bravery in the face of physical pain, hardship, and even death or the threat of death. While moral courage is the ability to act rightly in the face of popular opposition, shame, scandal, discouragement, or personal loss. It is standing up. And notice confronting. Three key words here. Choice. Confront. Stand up. Courage is the choice and the willingness to confront agony, pain, danger, and certainly intimidation. Or in the case of physical courage, something that is physically painful or hard. Moral courage is acting rightly in the face of opposition and shame and discouragement and personal loss and so forth. The only way to develop courage is to act courageously. That's it. That's, that's the secret sauce. The only way to develop courage, the only way to grow in courage, is to constantly put yourself in a position to willingly confront pain, hardship, to act rightly in the face of oppression and tyranny. You have to make a choice to stand up and say, no more. To push back on the agony and pain. To say to the danger and the intimidation, no, enough is enough. I will not be intimidated anymore. I will not be threatened by you anymore. Is it easy? Of course not. Is it simple? Yeah, it's very simple. This is courage. Now go do it. (laughs) make the choice, stand up to the bully. But it's not easy. We all know that. Anyone who has had to stand up and confront their bully like I did my junior year of high school, I wanted to throw up while I was talking to him. When I went and confronted my bully, I wanted to vomit all over his boots. I couldn't believe I was doing it. It was like an out-of-body experience. But after I did that, it proved something to myself, that I was capable of doing it. And that if necessary, I was prepared to do it again and again and again. This is why, in my opinion, jujitsu is a great way to prepare your kids to be bullied. Because it's positive bullying. There's always going to be a kid, just like for adults. But there's always going to be somebody on the mats who's bigger and stronger and tougher and better than you are. And you got to deal with that problem regularly. I get bullied almost every day by somebody at the gym. My kids get bullied every time they train by somebody. It's in a safe environment. It's in a low-stress environment. It's in a caring and encouraging and motivated environment. 
so that when it happens in the streets, in the park, at school, at home, at church, wherever it happens, they're prepared because they've been stress tested. They've had that positive bullying experience. Anti-bullying campaigns at schools, in my opinion, are worthless. All they do is encourage the bullies, just like anti-gun campaigns. Don't promote people. <laughs> Don't promote, uh, what do you want to say? an end to gun violence. It simply means that people that are law-abiding citizens don't have guns. And the criminals who don't care about the laws have all the guns. Likewise, teaching kids that bullying is wrong simply opens the gate so that the wolves can come in and devour the sheep. Telling someone that bullying is wrong is like spitting into the wind. And you're not always going to have a teacher or a playground attendant around to stop the bully from bullying you. There's going to be times when there are no police around. There is no one to stop the bully from bullying you. Like I said, in cases of domestic violence and domestic abuse, it happens behind closed doors. It happens in secret. No one's coming to save you from the bullies. It's like Sean Patrick Flannery said about jujitsu. Don't let your kids know, just be hopeful. Let there be more than hope behind your kids know when a bully put, picks on them and pushes them. A kid who knows how to defend herself or himself, physically, emotionally, intellectually, is a child that is ready to grow up and to pass into womanhood or manhood because they've been prepared. They've been field tested. They've been stress tested. They know what it's like to be pushed around. They know what it's like to be beat up. They know what it's like to compete in some instances. They've been pushed intellectually, emotionally, and physically. And they survived. And they thrived. And they got stronger and better. And they saw it in themselves and others. And that's something that you can't buy. You can't give it to them. You can only put them in a position to get it for themselves. But the confidence that comes from that, the strength and the courage... These are things are priceless. And yet, because we live in such a weakened culture, and there's such a shortage of men in our culture, not many kids have this opportunity, which I think is to their detriment and ultimately to their destruction. Through our own choices, we have created a society of sheeple that are quick to give up their freedoms and their rights for the sake of convenience and the promise of safety and security from their bullies. You don't need guns. We'll protect you, says the bullies. You don't need to learn how to fight for yourself. We'll fight for you, says the bullies. Don't worry about anything. We'll take care of you, says the bullies. You don't need freedom. You don't need rights. We have your best interest in mind. We're only here to serve and protect you say the bullies. It's like the movie Finding Nemo, which I have watched mm, a thousand times <laughs> in the past 18 years or whatever it's been, 15 years. There's a scene where the sharks get together for a support group meeting and they're trying not to eat fish. Fish are friends, not food. 
goes their motto. It's a fantastic scene. You can look it up on YouTube. Dory and Nemo are there. They're fish. So they're invited to the meeting of these sharks. Unfortunately, I think Dory stubbed, she hits her face and blood comes out of her nose and one of the sharks loses it. <laughs> and it's pretty funny, actually. I think it's really funny. But that's the problem, is that a great white shark is always a great white shark. Even if he promises that fish are my friends, not food, he's still a great white shark. He's still a predator. And something's going to eventually set him off, and he's going to eat those fish. A bully is a bully, unless he is curbed, unless she is checked. Otherwise, something will always set them off, and then they will continue bullying other people. So to wrap up the book, 30 days later, I transferred Saddam Hussein to a proper military police unit, and a year later, the Iraqis hanged him for his crimes against the nation. Bullies are all the same, whether they are in the schoolyard, in the workplace, or ruling a country through terror. They thrive on fear and intimidation. Bullies gain their strength through the timid and faint of heart. And that's important, as I brought up. For a bully to thrive, they need people who are weak and easily intimidated. Those are the easiest people to inflict fear upon and therefore control and manipulate. The weaker a person, the weaker a society is, the more cowardly a society is, the easier they are to intimidate through fear tactics. Bullies gain their strength through the timid and faint of heart. How often in your relationships have you allowed someone to intimidate you by scaring you? I don't mean you watched a scary movie. I mean they threatened you. Or they said something to you that was intended to intimidate you by causing you to be afraid. Afraid that they would break off the relationship. Afraid they might lash out and physically hurt you. Maybe they said something, something so sensitive that you never want it brought up. And they know how it makes you feel when they bring that thing up. Whether it's a past experience, whether it's something that you did that you could never live down again. It's just a sensitive subject that you don't like to be teased about. And you definitely don't like it being used against you as a weapon. Why did you stay in the relationship after that? Why do you stay in the relationship? Nobody can love another person through fear and intimidation. That is a lie. Relationships do not thrive on fear and intimidation. Not good ones anyway. Not healthy ones. Only the worst kinds of relationships thrive on fear and intimidation. Because it is a relationship of a bully and a victim. And the intent of the bully is to keep you timid and faint of heart. To keep you fearful. You are being bullied. You're not being loved. You're not being cared for. You are being bullied. You are a victim. You are the object of ridicule and scorn. 
you are the object of oppression and persecution. The person that you are in the relationship with is like a great white shark. And eventually, they are going to devour you. Perhaps body, soul, and mind. Because you choose to allow it to continue to happen. Because they are like sharks, as McRaven writes, that sense fear in the water. They will circle to see if their prey is struggling. They will probe to see if their victim is weak. If you don't find the courage to stand your ground, they will strike. In life, to achieve your goals, to complete the night swim, you will have to be men and women of great courage. That courage is within all of us. So dig deep and you will find it in abundance. And that is the end of chapter seven. Stand up to the bullies. Make your bed little things that can change your life and maybe the world by Admiral William H. McRaven, U.S. Navy retired. Wherever there are sharks in your life, you have a choice. Tread water and wait for them to devour you or prepare to fight back. But it's your choice. It's a simple choice. It's just not an easy choice to make. It's not an easy choice to act on. Because again, courage is the choice and the willingness to confront agony, pain, danger, uncertainty, or intimidation. And yeah, maybe it is in your relationship at home. Maybe it is in the workplace or at school. Maybe it is at the gym. Wherever you find it, wherever it finds you, Understand that you're in the water with sharks. And it's up to you to choose. To confront it. Or to tread water and wait for it to come and devour you. Simple? Yeah. Easy? No. But every time you do it, speaking from experience, it does get easier. But even now, for me, standing up to other people, people that I know that I can physically dominate, intellectually dominate, I still get that tightness in my gut. I still get sweaty palms because I want to say things and I want to do things. But as I said at the beginning, a lot of times what I want to say and what I want to do is extremely counterproductive and is not going to diffuse and de-escalate the situation. It's actually going to inflame the situation and make it worse than it needs to be. So how do we confront the bullies? How do we have the physical and the moral courage to confront the bullies in our life in such a way that we end up with a good result, a positive result, something that we can say, I confronted my bully. And as a consequence, now I am thriving. Now I understand what courage is. Now I thrive on being courageous for myself and for others. Because to be blunt, in my opinion, 
It doesn't take a lot of strength to punch someone in the face. It doesn't take much effort to say to a bully in public whatever needs to be said to them, or at least what you think needs to be said, to dress them down. That's easy. That's emotion. That's a blunt instrument. But to wield a scalpel, to cut out and excise only the dead parts, that takes strength, that takes skill, that takes wisdom. But you'll never get there if you don't start today. At first, it's going to be clumsy, awkward. It's not going to be pretty. But the more you stand up, the greater courage you'll have, the stronger you'll become, and the easier it will be to articulate what you're feeling and thinking in a way that isn't immediately exacerbating the situation, raising the temperature in the room, going from a six to an 11 emotionally. You'll, able, you'll be able to keep it together in such a way that you go in, you interface with the bully, you say what you need to say tactfully, you understand the rules of engagement, you get in and you get out. And there will be times, for sure, as there have been in my life, where you have to grab someone and say, this is how the next 30 seconds are going to go. And you have a choice. It's either going to go really, really catastrophically bad for you right now, or we can walk away from this situation. Limbs intact. No blood on the outside. But most of the time, for myself anyways, it's verbal sparring, and it's an intellectual battle. Because I don't want what I say or do to the bully to spill out onto their spouse or their kids or their co-workers or other people. Because remember, bullies are weak. They're cowards. They're always going to punch down. And if they can't punch down at you, they will find a replacement for you. So proceed with caution. Be wise as serpents. Be as innocent as doves. But think about today, possibly. How do I confront the bullies in my life? How do I stand up? How do I exhibit courage in my life? I stand up against my parents who bully me or my siblings, or my coworkers, or students, or my peer group, or people at the gym. Wherever you are bullied, how do you break that cycle? How do you prepare so that the next time the shark swims up to you, you can punch it in the nose, whatever that looks like? So that's all I got today. I hope that was helpful. I hope that got you thinking. If you aren't familiar with McRaven's book, I highly recommend it. Otherwise, go look him up on YouTube and watch his speeches. He's got a classic one that has got tens of millions of views. Otherwise, I will be back on Wednesday for the midweek debrief. I think I'm going to talk about education. How are we supposed to raise warriors in a society that doesn't even teach children how to think like warriors? Doesn't prepare them to actually be courageous adults. So I'll talk about education probably unless something comes up between now and then, which is entirely possible. Otherwise, if you want to support the podcast, as always, subscribe, share, go to Anchor FM, Warrior Priest Podcast, hit the uh, support button, a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars a month. It goes towards hardware. It goes towards resources. It goes towards everything that I put into this podcast. I have t-shirts and stickers available. 
I'll be posting some more on Instagram about that to update everybody. Otherwise, thank you as always for sticking with me through everything. Thank you for your prayers and your encouragement. Otherwise, I will talk to you on Wednesday. See you later, weirdos. Peace.